Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. This recording and the festival itself take place on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to ancestors and elders, past and present. We hope you enjoy this conversation from our 2021 podcast series. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to um, this celebration of the Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Australian Novelists Award, the 25th um, Best Young Australian Novelists Award. My name's Jason Steger. I edit the books pages in The Herald and The Age. The awards were established by former literary editor of The Herald, Susan Windham, and over the years have acknowledged and recognised the emergence of some very significant Australian writing talent. This year is no different. Um, before I introduce our writers, I'd just like to say that we had a lot of very fine entries, and I'd also like to thank the judges, novelists uh, Peggy Frew and Pip Smith. What has changed this year, though, is that we can now give our novelists some financial reward, not gigantic, but some, and that all helps. And for that, I have to thank the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. Clearly, everybody is a beneficiary of the uh, copyright fund here. <laughs> um, so let me introduce our writers. Um, on my immediate right is Kate Cromink, the author of A Treacherous Country, a historical novel set in Tasmania in the 1840s, in which we join the bumbling Gabriel Fox as he attempts to track down one Marianne McGinn to deliver her a letter and fulfil a task that he's been set by the great-grandmother of his beloved back in England. Not much turns out the way Gabriel hopes or expects. His horse is recalcitrant and finally stolen. He loses his possessions, he falls into dubious company, and he is lumbered with two newfangled whaling harpoons. Uh, Kate won last year's Vogel Award for her novel. Um, our judges said, that the reader cannot help hoping desperately for lovable, hapless Gabriel Fox to fulfil his bumbling mission and for the tenderness of his heart to be rewarded. Like Gabriel, who despite his many abject misadventures in a wet, dark and cold Van Diemen's land, maintains a delightful buoyancy and sweetness of spirit, this is a book that works its crooked charm to lasting effect. Moving along, on, on Kate's right is Vivian Pham, who is the author of The Coconut Children, which she began writing at the age of 16, I think, while attending the Story Factory in Sydney. It tells the story of Sunny and her mild obsession and friendship with Vince, her old childhood friend who is fresh from two years in juvenile detention and seemingly out to make mayhem in the streets of Cabramatta. Sonny and Vince are Vietnamese-Australians, and this coming-of-age novel is set firmly in that community. Uh, the, earlier this week, um, Vivian won the Matt Rochelle Award for the Best New Writer of the Year at the Arbiers. But um, it's, not, it's not without its darker moments, as Vivian considers the trauma of the older generation who escaped from Vietnam and the trauma that is visited on their children. The judges said her book pulsed with life and vivid language. It's non-judgmental portraits of parents living with trauma and children, struggling to comprehend their parents' choices, is nuanced and wise. Work one would expect from a writer far beyond Pham's very young years. And on the far right is Jessie Too, the author of A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing, a brilliant title for a brilliant confronting novel. 
It focuses on Jenna Lin, former child prodigy violinist, trying to find a way back in the world of classical music and trying to find some sort of emotional solace in her promiscuous sex life. Jessie is a journalist with Women's Agenda and writes a fortnightly book review for the Sunday Age that features on the Herald website each week, each, every other week. Uh, the judges said that Jessie, with unswerving clarity, draws out many unsettling and compelling questions regarding race, talent, performance, perfectionism, agency and worth. A provocative book, skillfully written, that burns with an uncompromising power. Um, at the Arbiers this week, um, Jesse won the Literary Fiction Book of the Year. So, um, welcome all, and, and thanks for coming. Um, I would like to start by asking you, you all about writing, and, and clearly you have a passion for writing. And I, beyond what you actually create, what does, what does writing give to you? I think it begins with a sort of observational quality. It sounds pretty reductive, but you kind of have to have something to write. So you have to be someone who watches. And for me, um, I channeled that. I had quite a struggle from when I was a kid right up into adulthood with mental ill health. And I think writing was a way of making sense of things. I'm someone who kind of understands things when I put them into words. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of go through it in my head and talk to myself about it, or I can write it down and mm. help make sense of it that mm. way. Mm. You know what you think when you write it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think like when I was a kid and I would write, writing was a way to, writing and reading were both ways to play for me. Like I think with a lot of migrant parents, their idea of kids having fun is just like putting them in a room with a computer and then letting them go on Word doc and play with clip art and stuff like that. So I would just write stories. Me and my sister would just write stories to, to play and to tell each other. Um, and then, but particularly with, I think with the coconut children and with a lot of the stuff that I was writing when I was a teenager before that, I was hearing a lot of stories that my um, parents would talk about, about Vietnam. And I kind of felt that I wasn't learning any of this perspective or this, these stories in school or in, in the news. As far as I was concerned, I didn't think that any books had been written that told their stories. So it was important to me, writing was important to me as a, as a matter of historical record. Like I wanted to almost keep almost fossilize their stories and keep them intact and keep them in their own words. But yeah, as I, as I drafted the book, I felt more freedom to, to insert myself in the story and to see things in a different way. Yeah, I totally um, share what both of you have said. Um, it's really the most sort of powerful way that we can, I feel that I can be in the world because like, you know, you grow up, you read these stories where like you don't see yourself. And so like, you're always trying to like actively compress your identity into like stuff that you see and, you know, whatever you're reading or whatever you're seeing in the movies, you're never seeing yourself, you know? So like writing was the way where I could find like complete, you know, liberated freedom. I could be like super friggin' vile on the page. Like I could like <laughs> swear my guts out. I can write like the dirtiest, 
most awful things that you would never say aloud, but like it felt so good to write it on the page and to see it because it suddenly meant something. Like the moment something is documented in this language that you know, we, you and I, um, Vivian, have you know, it's our. Is it your second language? Sorry, I shouldn't have made um, that assumption. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. my second language. Um, we have learned this other language, and you try to be very. Like I remember just struggling to be very good at English as a very young kid because I knew that. You know, when I came to this country, I was like four or five. I didn't know how to speak English, so I was thinking in Mandarin, and like people would just think I was dumb because I couldn't articulate in their language. And so, like from a very young age, you learn that in order to feel dignified around white people, you have to learn their language really well. Like you have to be very careful with the way you calibrate language. And like I think that was also just. I know it sounds awful, but it just was a way for me to feel powerful because I didn't see any Asian women who were powerful, you know, in the public sphere. So, yeah. So, because you, you were taking control. Yeah, exactly. It's my own personal, private way to feel like I had any sort of agency mm, in this world. Mm, mm. And was that part of the? Um, that was part of the um, drive behind a, a lonely girl. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, it just. A book that really came out like vomit, um, and you know, you, you, I vomited all these words out, and then I like cleaned it up, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, and then you get a book, you know. But um, I, I was actually thinking the other day how funny it is um, that when you go to a bookstore, you only see like one name on the front of a book because, like, um, as you know, all you writers out in the audience know. Anyone in this room should know that a book is never a solo endeavor. You know, it's a project that involves many, many people, and like that process of cleaning up my vomit really involved <laughs> a lot of very smart women who are in this room today. <laughs> so, do you two, did you did you vomit your books out? Did you? <laughs> is that was that, is, that, is that how you would define your your creative processes? I, I love the way you put that. As I was reading A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing, I was thinking this was either really difficult to write or it came out. <laughs> and I, the word I thought of was catharsis, but I think vomit is so much better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, for me, I wrote mine as a bit of a coping mechanism. Um, I had a daughter who was a few months old and I was actually hallucinating with exhaustion, like I wasn't coping very well. And new motherhood was this very physical thing and this very emotional thing and I felt like I was losing control of my mind a little bit which I'd felt in the past in a way that affected my life quite badly mm. and so I needed to grab hold of my intellectual self again so I started writing a novel intentionally to enter into the Vogel because I'm slightly less crap with a deadline so that was a deadline to write to <laughs> so I don't think it flowed quite as easily as you describe, but it was it still had that compulsive element to it mm. that it had to reach it, its end. Yeah. It had yeah. to come out. So you, that was a matter of months then? That you... Eight months, more or less, yeah. Crikey. Yeah, but it was half as long. It was 30,000 words yeah. when I submitted it, yeah. yeah. And Vivian, were you, was yours a, you know, did, you, did it come easily for you, this, the coconut children? Was it, you know, was it there and you just onto the page or onto the screen or? Um, I think the first draft at the Story Factory with, um, with Richard and Bilal, the, the story, and with Alison, um, 
the volunteers that helped me I was really it was like vomit but it was like I wanted it to be nice because <laughs> I knew that they would read it and um, I knew that they would read it and I kind of just having a sense that someone would read it was really important to me and I feel like that's something that I've had um, since I was like writing when I was 12 like I would write fan fiction online on Wattpad and there would be people on the internet that would just comment and so I knew that there were people that that were going to read it so um, but yeah it did feel like um, the first draft the year that it took to write the first draft it felt like I was just getting a lot of a lot of stuff out and I wanted to take up as much of the page as possible to use as many words as possible to like exhaust the English language and to completely like just exploit it do you know what I mean um, and then um, the process of rewriting it like it wasn't even editing it was completely rewriting and deleting like full whole chunks of the text really yeah mm -hmm. that was just as cathartic as um, as as the writing of it because I felt like it just gave me more control of of things that I had experienced um, mm. to be able to know that because it was published by the Story Factory and it had like a physical being, it was, you know, printed and bound. Mm. It gave me the the bravery to just, with the word doc, just delete whole chunks that I thought I had no use for anymore, that didn't clutter my mind anymore. So, yeah. And so you, you, you said that you, before you got to that point, before you got to the Story Factory, you were writing fan fiction and you got comments online about, I think your fan fiction was about Harry Styles, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hairstyles but, um, but so so what sort of comments were you getting back were they useful comments or were they just sort of um you know foul critical comments oh no, no they were really they were just really encouraging like when are you yeah. going to update where's the next chapter yeah. like stuff like that um and it was really clear to me that you know and it because because it, it was something that happened with a, a lot of teenage girls all over the world that were writing about one um one 18 year old boy at the time <laughs> but each of us had um an individual a unique conception of harry styles like what he meant to us <laughs> that was different so it was just really strange but i, I think that's i think that links to the idea of of biography and because with the coconut children the main character of vince is based really loosely on someone really close to me that had been through juvenile detention mm. um but my experience writing Harry Styles fan fiction kind of let me um, take a person and then have completely dominate them creatively and just describe them the way that I wanted, you know, and not and feel like it was empowering because, you know, you're not letting other people describe you. You're taking complete control over your own perspective. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, that old cliche of, of the, the writer playing God is, 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 an, is, True in, in all three of your books, really, hasn't it? Um, yeah, totally. At the, at, the, at the heart of them, though, there are strong voices, all, all three. And I wondered if you could um, possibly tell us a little bit about the creation, in your case, Jesse of Jenna, of Sonny and Vince, and of, of Gabriel Fox, um, where they came from and how you found their very distinctive uh, narrative voices. Um, I think I churned just, I guess, the 
rage that I had personally into this character. Obviously, this character is nothing like me. Elements of it, um, sure, but um, I was just so angry, and I just it's, in this world, it's so hard to know if you live in a woman, if in a, if you live in a female body, you don't really know what to do with that anger that's palatable to society. So like, I just had like so much anger that I didn't know what to do with. So I guess I just tried to put it through this like narrative conceit, which would like make sense to me because you know. Um, it's so hard to feel like you have any kind of control in this world as a woman. Um, and so like, like you said, you know, playing God, it, it feels like, it, it feels really um, strengthening in a world where like, it's hard to find strength and to feel like you can exert that strength um, publicly as a woman. So um, I guess like all that anger I channeled through just like my daily writing as well, like um, a lot of, stuff that I rant about in my journal. I think some of that came through her character as well. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to see, like, I think the, my favorite authors have always been authors that write um, to a world that they, you know, they're always looking to the future. They have this beautiful sense of like youthful futurity where like they write a narrative where like, uh, because this world is so ugly to them, you know, for whatever reason, they're not straight, they're not white, they're not able-bodied, they're not cis, that, you know, they imagine a better world. And I guess I was just trying to imagine a better world for my character, which I think maybe didn't happen because a lot of people actually said to me, like, they have never read a more sad book. Like, I had this um, one um, interviewer who was, I believe, in her late 80s. She was very kind, but she sat me down, and the first thing she said to me before the interview started was, like, she, like, put her hand on my shoulder. She was like, this is the saddest book I've ever read. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know how to feel. Like, thank you. But also, like, I didn't want to make people feel sad. Yeah, so... Do you think she meant that that Jenna... Oh, I don't want to give away too much, but, I mean, the end of the book is... I read it as being sort of um, slightly ambiguous um, about her prospects. Is yeah. That, is that fair enough? Well, yeah. I mean, aren't the best books books yeah. that don't tell you how to think or feel? Yeah, mm, so mm. I, I wanted to leave that... Um, open-ended I wanted I, like the best works of art are ambivalent and tentative you know so I wanted that I don't ever want readers to come to a book and may, be made to feel anything you know like you need to come to a book and experience it on your own terms and the best books try and you know give you the space to feel whatever it is you feel when you engage with the work um, but yeah like I guess it is um, I mean it's telling for me that a lot of women have come to me and said I feel so much sadness reading this character um, for whatever reason, um, mm. but yeah, she's quite a she's quite a fierce. I mean, despite her her various predicaments in the book, she's a fierce, powerful woman, isn't she? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I want her to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we need more iterations of really just like fuck off kind of women. You know, women yeah. who just like fuck this. I don't care what you think about me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, um, and then see what happens, I guess. So, so how much of you is in her, do you think? Um, I, bet I, you guess, get asked that, I bet you get asked that all the time. Um, the, I think the only clear correlation is that we play the violin. I right. mean, I'm nowhere near, obviously not, as, she was a prodigy. She was like, you know, world famous 
soloists traveling around with orchestras. I nowhere near that. But yeah, I, I guess I tried to just channel the musical education that I had. Because I once, when I was like 15, I did want to pursue, you know, a, a serious professional violin career in the classical music industry. But that's hard. And, you know, I, I guess I just didn't have hmm. the guts or the talent. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Vivian, Sonny and, Sonny and Vince. Um, I mean, you've said you've spoken a bit about Vince, but you said to me um, a couple of weeks ago that Sonny was an easy voice to get, but Vince took more um, more work on your part. Um, mm. Sonny was easy because, yeah, Sonny just thinks the way that I think in a lot of instances. Like her, her. She's very observant, but to a fault. Like she thinks she sees things about people and she thinks she understands the people around her, but her perception of the world is really twisted. Um, and so she's constantly, she's constantly trying to kind of pick up pieces of her parents and invent memories about them to try to understand why she is the way that she is. Like she grows up with a really, you know, a really, um, angry and demanding mother, like a really controlling, emotionally controlling mom. Mm. And she's just really trying, to, she sees like her mom being a monster at times, but then she also wants to try to remember, even though she wasn't born then, what her mother used to be like when she was her age and stuff like that. So I think her, I think the special thing about Sunny is that she tries to see people at different times in their lives but it can really misconstrue things because it's all a product of her imagination so in a way her relationship with her parents even though it's heartfelt and it can seem authentic it's so full of illusions because she's really just trying to form a connection with them that doesn't really exist because her parents aren't interested in getting to know her her parents are interested in her welfare only superficially, you know, as a lot of migrant parents are, um, they feel like they've done enough having, and in a lot of ways they have, they've been through, you know, a boat journey, they've been through a war, they've worked two jobs, three jobs, mm. but they haven't mm. been there in a meaningful sense for their kids. So I think she, she takes those patterns that she's learned um, to deal with her parents, with even strangers, that's why she gets so easily obsessed with people. Um, yeah, so that's, that's Sonny, I think, and... Yeah. And Vince? And Vince... I mean, he's, he's pretty, um, he's very distinctive, isn't he? He's very dis distinctive. Um, he's very poetic to me. Even though Sonny tries to use more ways to describe the world, I feel like Vince is just... For me, Vince is a really cinematic character, and the way that he looks at the world is even at times more heartfelt or direct in the way Sunny, Sunny does because she approaches the world in layers of illusion and mm. he is really trying to understand people, mm. connect with people in a different way. Um, I based a lot of, for a lot of Vince, I was looking at photographs, like I told you, mm. um, by a civil rights photographer named Gordon Parks who, he did a story for... I think Time Magazine, where he followed um, Red Jackson around, who was uh, like a, a gang leader in Harlem um, in the 1960s, I think. But 
Red Jackson was like a teenager. He was 16 or 17. Um, and there are pictures of him, you know, in, in a scuffle with, with bruises, with um, holding people against the wall, being held against the wall. But there are also pictures of him taking care of his little sister and sweeping the house. And I was like, I was like, shit, that's amazing. <laughs> I was like, that's so beautiful. Yeah. And I have never seen someone like him treated as a subject worthy of beauty. And so for me, Vince is pure beauty, pure aestheticism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, uh, it's very um, lovely when, um, well, Vince and his, and his little sister, those yeah. scenes are, 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 are quite lovely, I think. Um, they're quite, quite gorgeous. And it, it reveals a lot about him, doesn't it, I think. Mm. Um, Kate, tell us about Gabriel Fox. Um, who it's, it's set in 1840. He's a strange English bloke who turns up in uh, in in Hobart. Yeah. Where does he come from? I intentionally created a bit of distance between myself and my main character. Um, I mentioned I was in a pretty vulnerable place when I started writing the book, and that's why I started writing it to try mm. and reclaim myself a bit. Mm. Um, and initially, when I decided I was going to write a book to cope, um, I started, I turned back to an older manuscript, which was the story of Marianne McGinn, who is the woman he's looking for in the book. So it's the story of her as quite a young girl, and it's quite a sad story, and she goes through quite a lot of trauma, and I just found myself very unwilling <laughs> to deal with that, um, given sort of the state of mind I was in at mm -hmm. the time. So I found this other character instead, this guy who turns up to a whaling station to buy it and he can see it's not going to be a very good investment and then he wanders off and that felt really emotionally safe. So I thought, okay, I'll go for him. But the thing about writing for me, I think, is that, I mean, for anybody, it, it is a subjective thing, isn't it? And so you, you can't help but present yourself in there, even if you're trying to react against yourself and present um, someone who is opposite to you, someone who who sees the world in a different way from you, you're still presenting that oppositeness from mm. yourself. Mm. Mm. And so it, it became a bit of an allegory, I think, for a lot of elements in my life. Mm. He's a very, he's incredibly, um, he's incredibly distinctive in a very unusual way because he's he's pretty inept isn't he um very inept at, at some things <laughs> um i'm assuming that's not you the ineptness is I the opposite of you um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was so the and the distance you made him a male and you made and it's a historical novel yeah so that was that was the reason simply the reason for writing a historical novel but did that add complications in terms of um research making it credible all that sort of stuff was that was that an added complication or was that also freeing as well yeah both both that's a, such a good observation um i don't set myself up for a long time before I start writing something. I really just have to get going and see whether, find the logic of the story, feel it clunk into place and see mm -hmm. where it's going to take me. So it was fairly obvious to me as I went along what research I had to do. Mm. So it was things like the Oxford English Dictionary for kind of archaic language forms to mm. see if I was using them appropriately. And um, things like the archaeology of shore-based whaling, which I'm sure we can all relate to. Um, <laughs> So the story gained an inevitability to it, mm. which was helpful to me in that situation because I really needed to be pulled along by something rather than to be going ahead of something and dragging it behind mm. me. Mm. 
And there's a moment in, in when Gabriel gets to um, the whaling station, the shore-based whaling station, and they're waiting for whales. There are no, there are no whales. And, and somebody says, well, a few years ago, you could virtually walk from Hobart, uh, from there to Hobart on the back of whales. I mean, is it, were there really so many whales floating around? Yeah. Swimming around Tassie in those days? Yeah, yeah, that's something that was said. And obviously it is an exaggeration, but yeah, yeah. said in yeah. 1842 when they were um, hunted almost to the point of extinction. Mm. And actually the first seed of this book um, kind of planted in my brain probably about 10 years ago when I started realising that there had been no whales when I was growing up coming into the Derwent River. Mm. And then they were appearing. And every so often in winter it would be front page news. Mm. Not much else happens, so whales. And it would be like a mother and her calf would come or just a single one would come and people would go out in their kayaks and then there'd be a big debate mm. around, you know, stay away from them or do we go and appreciate them? Mm. And I just thought, what long memories they have mm. that they were so devastated and now they're returning. And I looked up their lifespan, which is very long, and it sort of coincided that, the eldest ones who might have remembered would have been dying around that time. Yeah, gosh. Um, I wonder whether you might um, read a little, just to give everybody a taste of your books. Um, would you, would you, would you sure. start, Jesse? Thanks. Um, so I'm going to read from the sort of chapter 10. I won't read from the beginning because the first page has, the, has a bad word in it, bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know the... <laughs> Um, I guess threshold uh, of the audience here. So um, I'm going to read. Um, so this is Jenna talking about her artist friends. I have this like dream one day to write just a book about artists because they're the most amazing people in the world. Um, so it's her, about her friends who she lives with um, and they're called Mike and Jacob. A postcard of a Barnett Newman painting is stuck on the fridge door as inspiration for Mike and Jacob's latest work. Concord was painted in 1949 during the artist's most prolific year. Sometimes I'd get milk from the fridge, close the door and stand there staring at the image, its pair of golden bars like handles of a door into a fancy New York City loft. The colour always reminds me of the ocean. Mike and Jacob have spent months now working on a show inspired by the American mid-century abstract expressionist. The pepper-dotted canvas that spent weeks on the floor of our lounge room will now be on display. Sometimes, as I'm practicing modern pieces by Copeland, Stravinsky or Glass, I think about Newman's paintings. The colours, the lines, the shadows. The suit from the other night had something like this on the wall. A single piece, minimalist. The opening of their exhibition falls on a Friday night, usually a concert evening, but the program is Baroque, so they don't need a full orchestra. It will be Mike and Jacob's first exhibition as a couple. I help them set up at a gallery in Redfern, a suburb that has been colonised by young white couples who work in design or law. Mike and Jacob are expecting more than 100 people, old college friends folks from the National Art School who come for the free craft beer and spend their Centrelink payment on tattoos and status anxiety tote bags. Mike and Jacob both graduated from there several years ago and tell me each opening is an excuse to bitch about other artists and find new people to fuck. I'll stop there.
just very quickly about your writing, um, because you also, as I mentioned, you, do, you, you write regular reviews for us. Is there, I mean, how do you feel about writing about writing criticism of somebody else's fiction and how do you how have you felt about receiving criticism of your novel um to be honest i'm not someone who voraciously goes out looking for feedback like i kind of just put whatever i want out and then just say fuck you all i don't care what you think this is what i think of my work it's good enough like, I know it's an arrogant thing to, to be, but, like, who cares? Like, I can be arrogant. Like, guys are usually arrogant, right? So I'm like, you know, I'll just perform masculinity. Um, but, you know, <laughs> uh, that, um, that, that's just how I've learned to cope with the world, I think, because I've been so, like, I grew up in a very conservative household. My parents were, like, the way that they raised me was, like, constantly telling me how awful kind of I am like or like I'm not good enough I'm not good enough for this you know you get 99% on the exam it's not good enough so like you this is like resilience that you build up and then you know it t came a time a few years ago I guess turning 30 was a massive thing and like realizing that you know um that you just have to change the narrative in your head and sort of start thinking well um whatever I think is good must just somehow be good because I believe in it um but uh, going back to the Chris, so I write for Jason's Masthead um, and I review Australian books and I love that job. It's like it makes me think on a deeper level that I wasn't thinking about before I got this job. Um, I know that I engage with the work and I don't know like um, who's read any of my reviews, but I, I'm so aware that my reviews are all completely self-centered. Like I always start with myself and like <laughs> what I think about the work, you know, <laughs> first line is always me, 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 me. Um, but like that's okay because like that's the kind of stuff I want to read, you know, like I want to read about like kind of like academic rhetoric like it's so dry like so this, like for me I don't engage with that kind of thing so like I kind of just like put out what I want to read and then just try and be like good with that yeah and like <laughs> just cancel out all the noise that you know because people will always throw noise at you you just have to try and like be in your safe space yep. and you know do that day after day you get better at it yeah that's good yeah that's good I feel like that's like the ideal authorial mindset <laughs> just just to distance yourself from the feedback <laughs> yeah sometimes i don't but yeah <laughs> <laughs> vivian would you like to read a bit from the coconut children yeah so this is the prologue it's from the perspective of sunny thinking about um her dad's boat journey it's called the ripple said to the tsunami Full moon floats in the sky like a cataract. Heaven has turned a blind eye to the boat people, but you see everything, don't you? There, a tiny fishing boat carrying 200 too many, bodies suspended over a blade of water. This is where myth and memory meet, where history comes to daydream, immortalized in ink, immortalized in minds. He is calling out to you, Ombad, Boating, ancestors. Here he sits beneath entangled limbs and destinies, my father, your son. You have watched him grow up from thumb-sucking infant to bullet-biting boy. You know him well. 
He does not disturb you from your resting place without good reason. He has only ever uttered your names in prayer to offer the harvest's first fruits, but he summons you now because, because a baby died last night, too young to know the taste of his mother's milk, lowered over the side of the boat and all watched in a doomed silence, half hoping the water would wrap itself around the newborn dead like a blanket or, or that the infant would learn to swim in the last seconds. Silence, silence is another kind of drowning. There were the pirates, too, with cunning smiles that stretch whole horizons and machetes spoiled by saltwater rust who stole generations of gold and stole all the pretty girls. Look at your son, the inheritor of your sun-soaked skin. The rest of the world may forget your death but he's the only evidence you ever lived. Ancestors, I have heard stories about you. You and I are two kinds of spirits. My father has not even imagined my coming. I am two decades away. I am mist unborn, a gathering of dewdrops, a thousand tricks of light not yet pricked with blood. Yours is an earthbound body that disobeys gravestones. Your disarrayed bones each have a mind of their own. You miss your missing limbs. Your hand writes love letters to you. Your spirit is steeped in enough suffering to last eternity. You are acquainted enough with death to keep it running other errands. Won't you give him a blessing? Just enough to blow the boat on its way a little quicker, perhaps some spare to keep in his pocket for the next journey. My father thinks about the bombs and baby blossoms dropping all around the world. That old poem comes to mind. The one written by a miserable leper who wanted someone to love but could never bear being seen. Who wants to buy the moon? I'll sell it to you. Oh, to be young and dirt poor, thinking that the world belongs to you, turns out to be almost true. Thank you. Mm. Um, when we were talking before, Vivian, you, you, um, you told me a bit about coming across the idea of post-memory. Could you, could you tell us a bit about that, how that, how that uh, came into the book? And, and Yeah, um, I came across that idea, well, it's like a, I think it's a, th theory developed by Marianne Hirsch. Um, I was doing a poetry suite for Extension 2 at school, um, and I just needed, like I was being pressured to find academic sources and stuff like that. And then I've, I found Marianne Hirsch's theory, and she was writing about um, the children of people that had survived the Holocaust and had survived concentration camps in Auschwitz. Um, and she she wrote about how the children of, of people that, that went through those events, through an active imagination, they, they, have, the, they have memories of, of those horrible, like, traumatic moments, even though they were born decades later, because those memories had been passed down in a familial context, but it's just really um, tenuous because 
the memory enters their brain and then it becomes, it kind of gains another power over them and over their imagination. And it's, I think she describes it um, as like a, a, rest, a wrestling match between your imagination as, as a child and the imagination, the, the words it was given by your parents who actually went through it. And I kind of tried to, I saw a lot of that happening in my own family when my parents would tell me about the things that they'd seen and been through, the people that they'd seen die. Um, and I, don't, I couldn't understand why it had become so personal to me. And I couldn't understand why I was, I was kind of scared by how interested I was in the suffering of it all. And I would kind of like, I would go out of my way to find newspaper articles about all the people that had lost their lives and the really detailed accounts of what had happened to them. Because I felt like if I didn't remember, then no one would. And then mm. what was the point of it? Mm. Yeah. So it's very central, very central to the coconut children, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, really. Um, Kate, would you like to read us a bit from A Treacherous Country? Sure. Thank you. I feel like that's hard to follow. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a moment in a rowboat. They're heading back from the whaling station to Hobart with someone who's died and also with Mrs. Heron, who suffered through marriage and is leaving her husband. There was an intimate extravagance in the pink and gold of the sunrise, unrolling its glow over the sea horizon and melting into a day as bright and cold as diamond. The waves pushed against our oars. We were alive, all but one, skating along the Earth's midline, tiny between the giddy depths below and above. A black lump drifted ahead, far littler than the whale. At first I thought it was some arrangement of dead branches, but as we drew near it floundered awake and disappeared beneath the surface. Seal, said my cannibal, William. Mrs. Heron and Mary sat together in the very bow of the boat, and therefore I could not see them as I rowed, and yet I heard their soft voices from time to time. The men and I would row a straight southwesterly course in a favourable wind, keeping the coast starboard and rowing and rowing, and allowing the sun to stain the sky from below the sea up and over our heads at its zenith and dip down again behind Mount Wellington and the spires of Hobart Town. That is what I was told, and I accepted it with the dumb resignation I'd learnt from Tigress. Poor Tigress, she which I had bought with Mrs Prendergast's money. The shadow of the obelisk stretched like a dagger right into my heart. Perhaps that's a touch melodramatic. I went like a little leaf in the water, pulled, pulled along by the current, letting an oar be put once more in my hands. This, although I thought I might vomit yet more at the mere thought of going out upon the sea again and at the prospect of sitting all day in the company of the soft and dripping cook lashed down the middle of the benches whom I had neither killed nor saved. God, whosoever you are, grant me a return to the enclosed fields of England. Let me dwell once more where there is no sea in sight and my troubles are no greater than bulls getting shot and a soul-deep shame about my mother's treatment and a father who does not like me and a girl who will not love me. Um, it's interesting that you, you said earlier on that you wrote it for, um, you wrote the novel, or at that stage it was a novella for the, for the Vogel. Mm. So you won, you won the Vogel and then you go through a process before the novel is published, but you had to virtually double it in length. Um, how do you go about doubling something you've, you feel like you've finished? 
in the same hallucinatory haze that you were in before. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I truly did not expect to win. It truly was a coping mechanism for me. Mm. My thought was that I'd enter it, I'd have a daydream, and then I'd continue surviving for a while. And then when I was out of survival mode, I could look back at it and decide if there was something in it or if I should just scrap it and move on to something mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. So then I won. That was the first strange thing that happened. <laughs> that's, um, that's wonderful. <laughs> it, it was wonderful. It was so, yeah. Um, and also in the same conversation, they told me that Annette Barlow, my wonderful publisher, she told me that I needed to double the word count in two months. So it was, <laughs> it was 30,000 words. Isn't it, um, isn't it, it more often the case that the publishers tell writers they have to cut? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, as I mentioned, I am a bit less crap with a deadline. Um, and it, <laughs> it gave me an excuse for two more months of, of this mm. Es escape from the situation I was in and I really did find it it was helping me you know I remember times before I started writing I'd be sitting up in bed at 1am breastfeeding my child and my husband would be there and I'd need her him to take her from me and I'd be getting angry at him for not taking her from me and his point would be Kate the baby you're holding isn't real she's asleep, I've got her, everything's fine, you can rest now. But I just wouldn't be able to rest, I wouldn't be able to accept that I wasn't holding a real baby for quite some time. So it really was, mm. it, it saved me in a way. Gosh. Just having that structure. Mm. And so, and he helped a lot, my husband, in helping me <laughs> smash this thing out in, in two more months because it was secret, obviously. I couldn't tell anyone but mm. him. Mm. So I couldn't ask the family for help with childminding or anything like that because I would have had to lie to them and I didn't want to do that and also ask for a favour at the same time. So it was, it was a gift in those two ways. One, that it gave me more time within this structured space. And two, because... I already had all the backstory in my mm. head and I just hadn't had time to get it down. You know, I'd smashed it out and then 20 minutes before midnight on the final day, I sent it off. And so the story was a very pared down yeah. version of what it is now. It's just the physical journey through Van Diemen's land, which I think was a bit of a straight line. And so the fact that I had time and permission to fill in the backstory made it into a loop. Mm. And I love stories that are loops, that mm -hmm. have that sort of logic within themselves. It's something that reality doesn't have. Reality mm. is stupid. It doesn't make sense. But a story, you can find that, that intercontextual yeah. meaning. Yeah. Um, and I also think that my main character, Gabriel, in his literal and metaphorical fog, as me, um, <laughs> he would have been pretty frustrating to read without that backstory he's really demotivated he's on this thrilling masculine quest but he can't really convince himself to actually care mm. or to actually understand what's going on around him and there has to be a reason why and there is and that reason is in the backstory which mm. slowly becomes yeah. clearer yeah yeah gosh well it's a um, this he's a fantastic um <laughs> gabriel's very uh, endearing i think Second novels, what's happening? <laughs> when are they coming? Um, I was just actually like getting quite teary listening to you, Kate, talk about that. 
because um, I was just thinking, like, maybe, like, you know, throughout history, if, we, if women had, like, supportive husbands who let them write books, we would have more books by women, yeah. um, which yeah, would be... Men say, where are all the great women? And you think, well, they were there. <laughs> they yeah. were just not able to... Yeah. Yeah. Stuck with the baby. Um, um, yeah, I, um, I found um, last year quite generatively, um, generative. Um, so I started a, a second book... And it is also based on um, the classical music world, something about it I'm kind of obsessed with, um, kind of the conglomeration of like power and whiteness and elitism, you know, um, and this idea of like the upper echelons of, you know, people who can only have access to that kind of art um, really intrigues me. But um, it's about a cult, it's about like kind of the asymmetrical gaze that we seem to have in Western countries where, like, white people just look on to white people for, like, art, culture, whatever, and, like, everyone else on the margins is um, excluded. And so, like, I, I'm trying to figure out how to do this because, um, like, I look to um, cinema a lot for inspiration. And you know how um, the best kind of movie scenes are when, like, you don't see actual, like, for instance... Directors who, like, show you a sex scene and then there are directors who, like, show you the reaction of someone watching or hearing the sex scene from another room. Like, that's the kind of book I want to write, like, the reaction or, like, the shadow of an action that, that's happening somewhere else. Like, I find that so much more powerful than actually looking at something directly. So, and that's, like, I think harder to do on the page. So, yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out in my next book. Vivian, have, um, you got, have you got something on the go? Are you going to... Yeah, like, um, I tried... I started writing a, a, a book and it was, like, really inspired by P.G. Woodhouse. I wanted to write something really funny. Um, and then I got 30,000 words into that and I haven't looked at it in, like, a year now. So I want to look at that again soon. And then I started writing something else. Um, and I have like 2000 words for that. And it's the first chapter, but I also, it's just so hard. The, I feel like this book was so easy now. And I know it was difficult when I was doing it, but once you get past it and you look back, it seems easy. But this, this time around, I'm having a lot of trouble. And I recently logged back into my old Wattpad account that I had when I was like 12. And I still get messages about those stories. So I'm thinking about picking that up again and like writing a few chapters so, there. So, so the second novel could be about Harry Styles. I would totally read that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I was wondering yeah. if like an still important or something. Oh, I feel like my 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 relationship with Harry Styles is so um, complex. <laughs> I can't even talk about it yet. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where and I'm. And you, uh, you're adapting. The Coconut Children for, yeah. for the stage, aren't you? For, um, for the stage, and also I'm working on adapting it into a film with my sister, Kim. So it's... Oh. So you're pretty that. busy, really, with... Yeah, I got like three books and then these things. Yeah. yeah. And school. So. <laughs> <laughs> and Kate, are, are you, um, have you gone back to that earlier, that earlier story? No, that's still there. I'd mm -hmm. love to make something of that. But um, I really want to write about organ donation, mm -hmm. um, inspired by my experience with my mum, who died really suddenly in 2017 in such a way that we were able to donate her organs, which was her wish, even mm -hmm. though she didn't know she was going to die. Mm. She still had thought about it. And there's 
there's real richness in there in writing. You know, there's the cognitive dissonance of wanting someone back so much that you kind of daydream that it's all been a mistake and they come to the door and yeah. I can introduce her to my daughter and tell her I'm pregnant and, you know, all these things. But also being incredibly grateful for the lives or the quality of life for the six people who received her organs, mm. one of whom was a young man on his deathbed. He was, he was out of hope. He was in hospital and he was going to die when my mum died. And I would never <laughs> reverse that. So somehow you kind of have to live with these two oh, completely gosh. opposing sides. Mm. So the story I want to write is two sisters, a younger and an elder, whose mother died when the younger one was only 14. And the younger one had a really difficult relationship with her mum, as I did with mine. And it was kind of frozen at this really tricky time, 14's a tough age, and the mum died. So the younger sister is haunted. Mm. She looks out windows at night and she sees the shape of her mother there. And she thinks of it like, like a subjective haunting, like it's muscle memory. Mm. Like her eyes, her retinas and her brain were so used to processing the image of her mother mm. that... It just keeps being presented to her just the way our lungs keep breathing without thinking mm. about it. Mm. And so when she dies, the younger sister, and becomes an organ donor, that muscle memory becomes a legacy into the recipients of her organs. So the elder sister needs to deal with that sort of mm. outcome. Gosh. That's uh, quite, <laughs> quite a book to deal with, to, to, to wrangle onto the page, I would think. Well, I've got a bit of headspace now, so I can think about <laughs> stuff other than young men. <laughs> now, um, are there any questions? Hi, hi. Um, so I'm not a big reader. My partner is amazing, and she reads and writes, and she gets up every day and writes, and now I'm kind of getting the whole thing of it, so I'm trying to get more involved. Uh, but I'm into audiobooks myself. So um, would you think of um, being your own narrator? for your own audio version? And if not, who would you pick? <laughs> Mine does have an audio book and it's um, Cam Ralph, who's great. He really captures the ineptitude. My voice is wrong for this book, so it couldn't be me. And can I just say it's lovely that you're supporting your partner by getting into what she's into. I think yeah. that's a really nice thing. <laughs> How about you guys? I would love to have like a Ricky Gervais or someone like out totally like wild or something. Um, like someone who doesn't like have an Asian face, that would just be funny, right? Um, I don't know. Like, um, I I have an amazing. Uh, the person who did mine was amazing, and she's also Asian, so that was great. But um, yeah, I think it'd just be like fun if like people um, outside of that identity performed the the nar narrative of the story just just for the hell of it. Yeah, it might. Yeah, it might just be like fun to try or like. And having a bloke, maybe? Having well, a no, bloke, actually, that would be dry. Having a bloke. <laughs> yeah, having yeah. a bloke, like, um, appropriate an Asian, straight Asian woman. That would be so <laughs> funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, my book has an audio book version, too. But when I was writing in my head, I would often, like, think about it in Keanu Reeves's voice. <laughs> like, I, I really, like, you don't know, but, like, in, in the editing stage of the book, Oh, it was so inspired, so influenced by Keanu Reeves, and I'll tell you why, because um, he's a big reader, and I don't know if you oh. know this, but he has a publishing press. It's called X Artists. I tried to send the book to them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I kind of really like the way that he speaks, like, you never know when he's going to stop, 
speaking. It's really like it's really <laughs> unexpected his cadence, and I really like that. Either him or Killian Murphy. Who, oh whose voice I re- oh, that Killian guy is the most, has the most beautiful face in the world, right? Yeah. That guy does have the most beautiful <laughs> face in the world. It's perfect in every way, and so is his voice. So yeah. <laughs> Are there any other more questions? Hi, all of you. Um, this is probably a question inspired by Vivian, but I would like to hear from the others. Uh, and I don't know whether you have children or not, but I noticed that when I had kids, it completely changed how I could, what, what movies I would see, what books I would read, because I just couldn't deal with the trauma. Like, for example, I was really into the Holocaust stories before, and now I just can't. It's just like, no, no, don't, your door's shut. Um, and I just wondered how that influences what you choose to write. I know you have children, for example, a child or some, or one at least. Um, and if the other, if it's just something that you think about, and maybe if you want to write something really in that mode, maybe we need to do it before we have children, because I do think, or I wonder what you think about how that changes, how, how, you, how deep you can go in that space. Yeah. I feel like after I wrote The Coconut Children, I kind of was, didn't want to deal with trauma at all, and kind of Woodhouse is famous for having this like eternally idyllic and happy place and that's now where I kind of go to when I want to read something because it's the language is still beautiful the plots are so complex but nothing can go wrong and you know nothing can go wrong and it's kind of the same way that when I watch movies I can't watch new things I always re-watch romantic comedies I've already seen because I don't want to be hurt <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah so I feel like so you get it yeah. I get it yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about you guys? Um, yeah, I've gone completely soft. I used to be a real horror fan. I used to love all the visceral stuff and I just can't. I've, I've tried and I've actually had to walk out of a movie, which I've never done before. Great movie. I just couldn't cope with it. Um, but my daughter, she's three now and she's helped me understand more about story. We, we live in stories, as you know, happens. And there's one in particular I tell her called The Boat Story. And we tell it together and we get to the jetty and we put our feet on the jetty and I say, what do our feet say on the jetty? And she says, pitter-patter, pitter-patter. And one day she said, pitter-patter, like the rain. And this was a breakthrough, not for her, she'd made the connection, but for me in understanding that she had used this fictionalised construct we created together to understand lived experience, which is rain, which sounds like feet on the jetty. So she was using the invented thing to understand the real thing and vice versa. Mm. Whoa. Oh, um, no, yeah. Um, whatever feeds you, whatever nourishes you, whatever gives you your comfort space, own it. Totally. Yeah, don't be apologetic. And like, I hate violence. I've always hated violence on the film, like in the big, on the big screen. So yeah, whatever like nourishes you and makes your heart grow bigger, then yeah, just stay in that space. You don't have to apologize for it. I would very much like to thank our three best Australian, best young Australian novelists. Kate, I've named you. Kate Croming, Vivian Pham, and Jessie too. And if you haven't read them, I advise you to get them because they're all, all three of them are fantastic. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.